0: Legends of the Craft Myth, Legend, and Inspirational Stories from Freemasonry. All right, welcome back to Legends of the Craft. Uh, sorry it's been a couple months since we've been with you, but uh hope to bring you some real interesting stories about uh, Freemasonry in early America this episode. Uh, as always, I'm uh, Brother Bungie, and this is Brother Kumsieh.
1: I hope all you, Brother, have been doing well while well, we've been uh, collecting facts. We really wanted to talk about the South American Liberators, but we need a little more time to collect some more facts because it's... A lot of it's in Spanish, and it's, it's the history of other countries, so it's not so easy for us to obtain, but we will be giving you that episode here in the coming months.
0: Absolutely. This time, uh, some information a little more relevant to American history, therefore a whole lot easier to find all the different facts that we need on. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, we're, we're going to focus today, actually, on, uh, on Andrew Jackson. You know, Of course, many of you know Andrew Jackson uh, as one of our presidents of the United States here. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit just about early Freemasonry in general in the Americas uh, before we actually get into the story of Andrew Jackson.
1: Yeah, to to know the story of Andrew Jackson is to know the early history of Masonry in America because he he somebody had to th- survive a lot of turbulence in Masonry in the eighteen thirties, but the story of Freemasonry in America starts a very long time ago, and there's a lot of different theories, so I'm going to give you what I've been able to find on the various theories. One of the first stories of a Freemason in North America is a man named John Skeen. Supposedly he was made a Mason in 1684 in Aberdeen Lodge in Scotland, and he settled in Burlington, uh, the capital of East Jersey, and was made a Deputy Governor from 1685 to 1690. Records of masons and masonry began to appear in the earliest part of the 18th century. and As the craft grew in numbers, lodges were formed. But if we even go back to the year 1606, supposedly there was a stone found at one of the first settlements in Nova Scotia, which bore a square and compass and some other symbols in the year 1606. Uh, this stone was procured by some early masons, taken to England, uh, traded around, and was brought back to Canada, and was put on one of the temples, one of the Masonic temples, as a cornerstone. Problem was, some of the gentlemen that had been uh, hired to do the plaster on the building, plastered over the symbol. And they've made many attempts to sort of, you know, bring up the plaster on the building and try to find where the stone is, because this would be not only the earliest sign of Freemasonry but one of the earliest inscriptions made by Europeans in the United States uh, of the English in North America but they have not been able to find it but they've made a pact over there the the association of the temple that you know if the buildings torn down or renovated they're definitely going to seek out the stone because it has such a historical significance but again this could be a myth it may not be a myth so the stone plays a big part in early American history um, there's another uh, story that is a reference to a gentleman named Jonathan Bletcher who was born in Boston in 1681 and was initiated into an occasional lodge when in Europe in 1704, making him, upon his return to Boston in 1705, the senior Freemason of America. Uh, this is some information I got from the Grand Lodge of British Columbia in Yukon. Always a very useful site, brother. Absolutely. Um, There's other stories about um, some records from the Plymouth County records from 1654. There's claims by a Reverend Edward Peterson that there was a lodge in Rhode Island in 1658. But like all early American history, the records, uh, they're pretty bad. So it's kind of hard to verify a lot of these things. Uh, When we start to get into more things that we, we factually know, we get into the early 18th century. Daniel Cox was appointed Provisional Grand Master of the Provinces of New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey by the Grand Lodge of England in 1730. And Interestingly enough, I think he's the first one to have made a suggestion in 1732 about a union of the colonies, basically a United States of America. Uh, He made reference to this, and it was again suggested and repeated by Benjamin Franklin in 1754. So as we see, the roots of our republic. Are being laid by Freemasons before the majority, if not all, the people in the colonies had even realized that this was an idea to create a United States of America. But we have to remember that Masonry in this time is kind of uh, in chaos. You know, the the Premier Grand Lodge was formed in 1717 by John Anderson. Uh, we all know the story of those four lodges in London. But what happened was is that there was a schism. Because a lot of Masons thought masonry was three degrees only enter apprentice, fellow craft master mason. A lot of other Masons thought, well, it's more than that. There are higher degrees, including the Holy Royal Larch, and possibly the Scottish Rite degrees, which were also known back then as the Old York Rite degrees. And so there was this kind of schism between what they call the ancients and the moderns, those that It's only three degrees, and those that know it's three degrees and more. Um, There's a good quote in um, the Articles of Union in Preston's illustrations which says It is declared and pronounced that pure ancient masonry consists of three degrees and no more those of the entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master mason, including the supreme order of the Holy Royal Arch. It's kind of funny how they say this, Brother Bungie, because it's three degrees including the Holy Royal Arch. So it's really three, but it's kind of four. And I think a lot of this comes from the ideas that uh, originally they say that the Holy River Arch was really the second part of the Master Mason degree. That it was one degree, and then at some point it was split. But anyway, to get back to the United States and the colonies, some lodges in the colonies were, were ancient, some were modern. For example... Uh, Henry Price, who was deputized deputy grand master of New England and the dominions and territories thereunto belonging in 1733 by the modern Grand Lodge of London, um, they had formed a lodge, the first lodge in Boston, called St. John's Lodge, which was a modern lodge. Now, the second lodge was formed, um, which I believe was somewhere in Maryland, was an ancients lodge. And these lodges, they kind of fought like Grand Lodges do today. They you know, visitation rights, all these different things. And uh, so there was a little bit of a a schism even here in the colonies that kind of rolled over from London. But really what made Freemasonry big in the colonies was the French and Indian War. Because all these armies of the English and the French were coming over here to fight, and they brought military lodges. So they said there was about 50 military lodges prior to the war. And that during the war, lodges increased in terms of 50% in terms of the number of lodges. So at the close of the war, they say there was over a hundred lodges, warranted by some of these grand lodges, you know, modern, ancient, and there was a couple of other in London. So really, it was the military that perpetrated masonry throughout, not only the colonies, but over in the you know the you know Louisiana Purchase, as we call it today, and, and those other areas where there was forts of the English and the French. And it you know the French and Indian War was, well, I think, like ten. 15, 20 years right before the American Revolutionary War. So here you have all these lodges, you have all these Freemasons, and guess what? You have George Washington, you have a lot of the founding fathers who fought the French and Indian War in the military, and they became Freemasons. I mean, George Washington is a celebrated Freemason by America, and he was a Freemason from the age of 21 till his death. He was a master of his lodge. Um, he was inaugurated as the first president on the Bible, um, of the Grand Lodge of New York by the Grand Master of New York, you have the Grand Lodge of Maryland laying the cornerstone at the White House and the Congress Building. So Freemasonry had a lot of uh, a lot of impact in the early Republic during the Revolutionary War. I'd say a majority of the generals that fought under uh, George Washington's command were Freemasons, and so even as you go after the war. Uh, to the signing of the Constitution, it's it's said as many as 28 out of the 40 signers of the Constitution were indeed Freemasons. Now, it could be less, you know, the records were bad back then, but based on decent proof, 28 out of 40 is a heck of a lot of people writing uh, on behalf of freedom, liberty, equality, and signing this great Constitution that we all embrace as one of the greatest documents in human history. The Declaration of Independence, another great document. 15 of 56 signers were Freemasonry, or possible Freemasons. And that's only 27%, so it's not like a huge number. But those 27% are the biggest names. You know, It's the Benjamin Franklins, the George Washingtons, uh, the James Madisons. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, some say he was a Freemason. There's a little proof. Some say he wasn't. Who knows? It wouldn't surprise me if he was a Freemason, honestly. But again, a lot of these these notable names are Freemasons. So, there's definitely an impact in our early American history of Freemasons. And you know, brother Bungie, I got to be honest. I think our country, our government, our three branches, our laws, our constitution is very Masonic. You know, and these things existed before the formation of the country, but lodges have their constitution. The Grand Lodge has a constitution, you know, and, and so the, the lodges are like states and the Grand Lodge is like a federal federal system. You know? The law just can't override the rules of the, of the main grand constitution. So you, you see a lot of division of powers, a lot of uh, enforcement of laws, juries, and all this. Same way Masonry set up in its court systems and all those other things. So I have no doubt within my mind that Freemasonry inspired this nation uh, on one level or another.
0: Absolutely. I don't think it has anything to do either with a lot of the uh a lot of the things you'll see on, on Freemasonry Watch uh, with, the, with the different buildings in Washington being laid out in the form of pentagrams and that sort of thing. Um, you know, but I do believe that's why those kinds of conspiracy theories do come up is because America does have a lot of Masonic principles in, in its founding. and in, in the America we know today, is there are Masonic principles that, that prevail throughout um it, but that's not hidden from anybody. That's not a great secret. That's not something that uh George Washington never hid that he was a mason and Andrew Jackson never hid that he was a mason. And uh you know that's who I would like to focus on today is is Andrew Jackson. Um you know we've talked a little bit about George Washington before and but uh you know Andrew J- I was inspired a little bit by a recent trip to uh New Orleans uh and to Jackson Square. And some of the stories we heard about the the fighting that he did there in New Orleans, uh, it's kind of inspired to talk about him a little bit more today. Um, you know, a- Andrew was born in 1767, uh, three weeks after the death of his father. Um, uh, he was is basically uh, him and his mom and a couple brothers. Uh, and he led a real humble life until, uh, as a young man, he joined a local regiment fighting in the Revolution against the British now andrew joined as a courier and uh... as a courier he was consequently captured in the line of duty um, and he suffered greatly during this imprisonment during part of his time there he was ordered to clean the boots of a british soldier and andrew refused he steadfastly refused to clean the boots of this british soldier and uh, and received a beating that would leave him scarred for the rest of his life and then before he was released he he, again he contracted smallpox and he nearly starved to death while he was sick but this wasn't even this wasn't the the pinnacle of what the british took from andrew jackson during his time fighting there his mother and and his two brothers his whole family was killed uh... leaving andrew jackson uh, as an orphan by the age of fourteen now with no family to turn to anymore and being part of the early American frontier which was not a kind and gentle place for a 14 year old boy yeah Andrew survived and I think he came out stronger and more connected to the heart of America for it Uh, Andrew was known as a man of the people because he could hold his own while he was drinking at the pubs uh, or gambling at the cockfights and he was never afraid of a fight either he was involved in 13 documented duels uh, most of which were over the honor of his uh, wife Rachel Now, Rachel was previously married, and she was supposedly divorced. But after her marriage to Andrew, it was discovered that her first husband never actually filed the divorce papers. They were all done, but he never actually filed them. So legally, she wasn't divorced from her first husband. Um, Andrew, he was unaffected by this. It was a legal snafu. He wasn't concerned. But he was willing to defend his wife against anyone who would scandalize this event one of the duels left him with bullet fragments in his chest that that couldn't be removed. And that led to a popular description of Andrew Jackson uh, that he rattled like a bag of marbles when he moved around. Now Andrew moved on later in his life to North Carolina to study law. He returned to Tennessee and was admitted to the bar in 1787. He was a delegate to the Tennessee Constitutional Convention and upon statehood he was elected a US representative and then again he was elected a senator for tennessee now andrew jackson's personal masonic records haven't been located but we do know he was a member of saint tammany lodge number one um, by eighteen hundred at the latest Um, and this would be eighteen hundred was while he was serving on the state supreme court in tennessee uh... whether he was already a member and we just the first records that are available are from 1800 or whether he became a member in 1800 we don't know that but we do know that by 1800 while he was serving in the state supreme court he was a member of St. Tammany Lodge number one um, which later was changed uh, the name was changed to Harmony Lodge number one. Now a year later in 1801 Andrew was made a colonel in the Tennessee militia and he fought many many battles, the most famous of which was fought in New Orleans. Using local resources, namely pirates from the area, he was able to pinpoint the exact location of the coming British attack. Then, using artillery he was able to defeat over 200 redcoats while only losing 13 of his own men. He was also involved in the battles that later led to the annexation of Florida from the Spanish. Remaining active as a Freemason throughout this time, Andrew Jackson became the sixth Grand Master of Masons of Tennessee in October of 1822. During his reign as as Grand Master, uh, the decision was made that he should run for President of the United States of America. Andrew would run in 1824, uh, just one month after fulfilling his duty as Grand Master, and he would lose to John Quincy Adams. He ran again in 1828, the next election but not without fierce opposition. The anti-Masonic party was formed this same year in upstate New York. Many non-Masons at that time believed that Freemasonry was a secret society that wanted to rule America in defiance of Republican principles, Um, which of course, we've never heard anybody repeat that uh, accusation in these modern times. That's something that's completely just of the past, but uh, believe it or not, some people actually thought that. Now the disappearance of William Morgan was a catalyst to bring all of these people together and cause them to form the first uh, successful third party in America. Now despite this opposition, Jackson won the election overwhelmingly and was named president and served his term very well. And there's there's a lot more to his story here, but uh, in in hopes that we don't run too long today, um, that's basically, that's all the story we need right now. andrew jackson was he was a very inspiring individual and he was he was an everyman he was a man of the people who lived like the american people was connected to the american people he knew exactly how what how life was led out in the colonies and subsequently how it had to be led while we were trying to uh to get our act together as our own nation
1: andrew jackson was a phenomenal character in american history i i went to uh new orleans with brother bungie here we uh We had a good time, and it was kind of nice to see Andrew Jackson out there at the square and his statue. Uh, I think he's a president that a lot of people kind of forget about, but I think he was pretty instrumental in in strengthening the Union and and bringing a lot of order to the the western part of the frontier. And like for what Brother Bungie said, though he represented the common man, which he did, he was also a Freemason, an intellectual, he had a military career. He served law in the Supreme Court. This is a guy that had done many, many things. He was a renaissance man. He, he wasn't just a career politician. He wasn't just a military man. He was a man that could do whatever was necessary to accomplish the task at hand. And that's why he's one of my favorite presidents.
0: But being connected to the common people, it's it's hard to make a case for those that would say, uh, Freemasonry is made up of of the aristocracy of America he wasn't an aristocrat he wasn't he was an intellectual man because he was an intelligent man he wasn't considered an intellectual because he grew up in an intellectual household he was a great man because that's what he was it wasn't because he was born into a family that allowed him to uh, to become a great man or put him in positions of greatness he was just a great person who was recognized for the skills that he had.
1: Which is why I think the anti-Masonic party lost to him. The anti-Masonic party, which set up in 1828 basically, their whole premise was that Freemasons were part of uh, the secret society trying to rule the country in defiance of Republican principles. That they didn't care about democracy. They didn't care about the will of the people. They didn't care about the common man. Because a lot of them wore lawyers, bankers, politicians, basically, or the bourgeoisie of the colonies and of the early republic. A lot of people were suspicious of Freemasons at this time. But really what made the anti-Masonic party what it was, what gave it its fuel, its catalyst, like Brother Bungie said, was the disappearance of William Morgan in 1826. Nobody knows what happened to William Morgan, and we'll kind of go over some of the theories, because this is kind of a pinnacle point for Freemasons, and not only for Freemasons, but for a lot of religions developed out of this. This was a crazy situation that's never been answered. What happened was that William Morgan, who lived up in Batavia, New York, had become dissatisfied with his lodge. Some accounts say he wasn't even a member of the Blue Lodge, but some accounts do. And that, so he left the lodge and he wrote this book called Masonry Illustrated. And he disclosed the rituals and the, and the grips and the tokens and the words and all the things that we find sacred. Um, not that it's much different from half the books you find at Barnes & Noble today, but back then this was a novelty. And so what happened was he was consequently imprisoned uh, by some Freemasons. What had happened was that the Freemasons had come out against William Morgan. They had advertised against him in the newspaper and made him kind of look bad. And then, you know, basically he owed some people money. So they were able to get him imprisoned um, because he owed people money. He got out, and then it seems like he stole some clothing or something. He ended up back in jail, and someone came and paid off his debt. No one knows. They took him by carriage to Fort Niagara, and there he disappeared nobody knows what happened so the three theories about what happened to him are as follows some say some Freemasons killed him they were acquitted on all charges um, actually the sheriff of Niagara was in prison for a couple years uh, linked to kidnap charges so some say okay Freemasons killed him they did him in but there's another account which they, the Freemasons claim they paid him actually $500 to leave the country go to Canada. Some say he even went to Turkey. And there are some reports that people in other countries saw Morgan, William Morgan. Now, none of these have been confirmed, but there is some proof that he just left and fled, and really all this was for nothing. No one got killed. Because the third one kind of ties into the second one. The third piece of um, evidence of what happened to William Morgan is that there was a body that kind of came up on the river, um, on the Canadian side of things, and the body was identified as Timothy Monroe. And so, okay, if the body's been identified as someone else, and it wasn't William Morgan. So it kind of backs up the idea that he left the country or whatnot. But again, nobody knows what happened. But what's interesting about it is that he tried to petition into the Royal Arch chapter in New York to, to create a new chapter of the Holy Royal Arch. But really nobody wanted him on there, so they, they kind of broke up the petition. They wrote a new petition without his name. But the records show that he actually was made a Royal Arch Mason. Which confuses me, Brother Bungus. How can you be in the Royal Arch if you haven't been through the Blue Lodge? Again, all these records are kind of funny back here. Some say he was a Mason, some say he wasn't. Some say he was a Royal Arch Mason but not a Blue Lodge Mason. Some people say he was cited in other countries. So it's really very ambiguous, a lot of this history. You know how word is. It spread quickly through the colonies and people were upset at Freemasons because they were killing those people that didn't want their secrets to get out because they wanted to control the Republic and destroy democracy. And this led to the creation of the Anti-Masonic Party. This party had a little bit of success, honestly. It wasn't just a complete blowout. They they were able to get two governors in Vermont and Pennsylvania elected. Um, on the local level, plenty of people were attached to the Anti-Masonic Party. problem is, it's not much of a platform, Brother Bungie. I mean, you can do that for a while while people are all upset about William Morgan. But by 1832... They started to kind of get away from the anti-Masonic part and started to establish more of an economical foreign policy platform because they wanted the party to last. And all the notable names of people that joined the party, they didn't care about Masons. Actually, some of them were Masons. They were people that didn't like Andrew Jackson. And so they were joining the ranks of the anti-Masonic party to sort of to, to get themselves into power or their ideals into power. So this whole thing of anti-Masonry was a facade in many cases. But it did have its effect on American masonry, big time. In 1830, uh, there were 108 Masonic lodges in Massachusetts. By 1840, the number had dropped to 56. But as things calmed down, in 1850, they rose back up to 66. And by 1860, there were 116 lodges, eight more than 30 years before. So Massachusetts sort of survived. In New York, where all this took place... um, was a lot more devastating. In 1826, there were 480 Masonic lodges. By 1835, only 49 left. Isn't that amazing?
0: Now, part of this, they went in and they actually destroyed some of these Masonic lodges and they vandalized them. Isn't that correct?
1: Absolutely. They would, you know, mobs would break in. They would uh, go into the temple rooms and steal stuff and break it and just pillage the buildings. And uh, the police could do very little because there were so many people that were you know, trespassing into these temples. Indiana, Missouri, New Jersey, you know, all these countries got hit hard. The South wasn't hit hard as much, probably because this happened in New York. And so, you know, words didn't travel as quickly and didn't take effect as much in the South. But I mean, there were drops in numbers in the South. Um, (laughs) This is my favorite part of of this whole thing. Um, They wanted Henry Clay to be their leader who was a prominent politician at the time. And so they tried to persuade him to renounce the order, but Henry Clay was a Mason, and he refused to do so, so they sort of got eluded by the person they wanted them to be, the savior of the party. They eventually picked a William Wart to uh to um, excuse me, a William Wart to be the uh, candidate for the presidency in eighteen thirty two. Guess what? He was a Mason. And a month before the convention, which nominated him for the party, for the presidency. He actually wrote a speech saying how great Freemasons were. So they call this the Anti-Masonic Party, but their nominee four years later is a Mason who defends Masonry. So, I mean, this party, in my opinion, a complete joke, Brother Bungie.
0: Now, there's a great great quote from Gould in the history of Freemasonry uh, that that has to do with the Anti-Masonic Party. Um, And he says, this country has seen fierce and bitter political contests, but no other has approached the bitterness of this campaign against the Masons. No society, civil, military, or religious, escaped its influence; no relation of family or friends was a barrier to it. The hatred of Masonry was carried everywhere, and there was no retreat so sacred that it did not enter. Not only were teachers and pastors driven from their stations, but the children of Masons were excluded from the schools and members of their churches. The sacrament was refused to Masons by formal vote of the Church, for no other offense than their Masonic connection. Families were divided, brother was arrayed against brother, father against son, and even wives against their husbands. Desperate efforts were made to take away chartered rights from Masonic corporations, and to pass laws that would prevent Masons from holding their meetings and performing their ceremonies.
1: That's a great quote. That really kind of summarizes the anti-Masonic party. I mean, you can tell with the decrease in the number of lodges, it it hit Mason's heart, you know. And it makes me sad to think that so many Masons abandoned their post and fled their lodges because of the persecution of people. I guess it showed who real Masons were and who weren't real Masons, Brother Bungie.
0: And there were definitely some, there were still ceremonies going on during this time. There were still Freemasons that uh, would go out against the mobs and do uh, cornerstone-laying ceremonies. There were still Freemasons who held steadfast to their traditions, but at the same time it does kind of show you uh, who who really belongs in the order and who's just kind of hanging out.
1: In Massachusetts, interestingly enough, the Masons there, even though they had been decreased in a lot of numbers and um, were personally attacked, their temples desecrated... Uh, took to the streets uh, in Masonic processions to lay cornerstones. Even though there were mobs just yelling at them, throwing eggs and cabbage and all sorts of nasty uh, goodies at them, they, they held their processions with their aprons, with their banners, and they refused to give in to the anti-Masonic party.
0: You know, we've had quite a difficult civil rights struggle here. Um, not undifferent from a lot of the civil rights struggles that are still going on. Um, but we we have persevered through it as freemasons and we we will persevere through anything that comes in the future uh... you know it's definitely not going anywhere we're definitely not going away anywhere And to all of those brothers out there that find there's there's nothing better to do than complain about our memberships being low and everything is bad for the order because we don't have hundreds of thousands of people joining every day that's not the point of freemasonry and it, we've got it a lot easier than a lot of our brothers ever did. We've talked about the brothers that were were being murdered uh, During the the Nazi regime over in Germany um, In early America, there's political parties whose whole platform was that Freemasons are bad and should be done away with Shouldn't be allowed in your church or in your schools or in your homes um, We really don't have it too bad today and uh, We've we've overcome so much it it's it's
1: amazing. One reason I like Andrew Jackson a lot is because here's his chance to become president of the United States of America. It's 1828, but he has a long history with the Freemasons. He's not only been one, but he's been their Grand Master in Tennessee. You know, he carried the banner of Freemasonry to the four corners of that state and opened new lodges and 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 taught brethren, you know, brotherly love, relief, and truth. But, you know being president's a big deal and you know in these days at least, at least for the last couple hundred years it seems like people they're willing to betray their values to become president but he did not betray the masonic order he remained a mason steadfast through this time and he refused to renounce the order and you know what happened he was rewarded for his efforts because he still became president despite the anti-masonic party
0: it is it's a very good story. Andrew Jackson was a great American and a great Mason. And we hope you've enjoyed his story as much as we have. Well, thanks again for listening to us this month. Uh, please drop us your emails with any comments, suggestions, uh, anything you really want to let us know at info at org. Uh, We'd be real happy to get those emails. And uh, we're very happy to see our listeners uh, has actually about tripled over the last month. So thanks for your support. We really appreciate it. This has been Legend of the Craft. We hope you've been inspired. And we'll tune in next month for more myths and legends of Freemasonry.